But first, a little disclaimer. We are prefacing a lot of the appeal of this podcast on the fact that we're prosecutors. However, we need you to understand we are not doing this podcast in our professional capacity as prosecutors. We're doing this as people, after hours, on our own time, with our own equipment. Now, we know a lot about the law by virtue of what we do, uh, but we're also just interested in true crime. So our opinions and commentary in this podcast are not the opinions of our office or our employer. They are not our professional opinions, and nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice or anything other than three friends blowing off some steam together. So with that in mind, don't try this at home. You know what it is. This is Joe. And Cheryl. And I'm Ray. And this is No True Bill. Welcome on today's episode, Ray hitting you with part two of the Yoga Shop Jump. Enjoy. Welcome. Welcome back. We have missed you. It's been a hot minute. We are going to hit, this might be part two, this might be part three, uh, the ice cream shop, Yoga Shop, Yoga Shop Jump. By Ray, and so Ray's gonna give us a little uh, last time on Yoga Shop Jump. <laughs> yeah, right. On Yoga Shop Jump. Um, so yeah, Joe asked for a real brief recap. Basically, the the very bare bones is round about eleven fifty p.m. on December sixth, nineteen ninety one. A call for a fire in the I can't believe it's yogurt shop in a shopping center in uh, Austin comes out. It's worked. Uh, it's ultimately learned that there are four dead girls inside. Um, Jennifer Harbison, she's an employee of the shop. She's 17. Eliza Thomas, another employee. She's also 17. Jennifer's little sister, Sarah Harbison, who is 15. And Sarah's friend, a 13-year-old, Amy Ayers. They're found in the back room of the yogurt shop. They have been um, shot execution style um gagged burned some of them beyond recognition most of them beyond recognition um they learned that the shop closed at 11. the only other uh commercial establishments in the shopping center that were even you know kind of remotely open at that time uh was a sort of like a whole foods type store that closed at nine and a pizza shop down the way that closed at 10. So out of the gate, likelihood of many witnesses in what, you know, during midday would yield a ton of witnesses. Not Not not, so much. So um, basically, as I think I indicated, or like we sort of ended the last episode, um, pressure, this case was kind of a pressure cooker from inception for a host of reasons. um, One of which, you know, aside from the, um, heinousness of the offense itself, it was probably exacerbated by the fact that the primary investigator in the homicide unit who was called out that night, uh, Sergeant John Jones, 
Mike Jones. Mike Jones. He was doing. Uh, well, he had a he had a CBS News crew doing a ride along with him that night. Oh, that's right. And so they were on scene. They're actually oh, there's how there's fortuitous. right. There's video of him getting the radio communications in his cruiser about the 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 call out. And we got one, we got two, we got three, you know, the, from the, um, the, the, the fire Austin, folks. well, the Austin police unit that arrived and the fire department folks. Yeah. So it's just from even before he's aware that there is a homicide, the news is there. Mm. Um, and also sort of adding to the cause for hysteria was that, um, it ain't Austin, me. Don't Austin me. was an extremely safe city back then. Um, it, it was basically, it was just a town, a town that was not prepared for something like this. They'd never experienced anything like this. Sure. And they, <clears throat> in this book that I relied primarily on, but there are a, a ton of sources on this case. Um, it had, I guess the FBI's crime stati statistics for that year. Um, through December of 91, by comparison, uh, Cleveland had 183 homicides. New Orleans had 313. Fort Worth, not too far away, you know, in the Dallas metropolitan area, had 180. Austin had 52. Really? Yeah. Very, very few homicides. Just object like everybody agreed, safe place to be. And then quadruple homicide of teenage girls. Yikes. You know arson the works it was something that everybody was just losing their mind over um also at the time the austin police department did not have any kind of public information officer so mike jones his homeboy <laughs> huck and other individuals who in in the um apd structure rank structure had to sort of act as media liaisons and as the story will unfold that was a disaster <laughs> um but yeah so there's video footage you can you can pull it up it was part of i think it was made part of a 48 hours episode um it's it's on youtube wherever you know jones is on scene at the icby with like a i don't even know if he had a podium i think he's just standing there mm -hmm. surrounded by this you know throng of media personnel while the shop is still smoldering. Jeez. Um, he tried to keep the statement vague, said they sustained gunshot wounds to the head, severe burns, and wouldn't really say much else. So they already knew from that early, it's still smoldering, and they're like gunshot wounds on these DBs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. They, they There was no doubt that they had sustained gunshot wounds okay. to the head, all of them. Um, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Amy, the youngest one, she was shot twice. Yeah, once with the the lower 22 yeah. and then the 380, the 22 didn't pierce the skull, but then the 380 is what did her. Um mm. and your memory is phenomenal. Yeah. Um and then so, we got uh Irma Gerd who came in and screwed oh, up Irma. all the evidence. Oh yeah, Irma Rios. Yeah, so that was a yeah, there's please if you want to just be enraged about uh you know, lack of of and the bitch who custody. came into fingerprints but didn't do fingerprints. Right. If she yeah. didn't if she didn't all those folks. All the the <laughs> you know, she's a latent print expert, which by definition means you can't see, see it. Them. And she didn't roll prints unless she didn't dust for prints unless she saw them. Yeah, that that's you know. Go go back to episode one if you want to listen to some infuriating uh forensic work. Although, I mean, the only sort of 
I don't know, excuse for them was this was 1991. It's not nearly as sophisticated as it was now, but even then just almost criminally negligent. I mean, some of the stuff. It's like, come on now. But that's why, been that's around. why the Austin police called in this, this Texas Rangers or something. with Dude, the, the D- department of DPS, safety. Yeah, department right. Of Public safety. yeah. Right. They were supposed because to be because they're the like, this is above us. DNA. They got a whole lab. Right. We're going to call these folks with the lab to come in, they know humble what ourselves, yeah. and yeah. let these people who know more about what they're doing. And then they've hooked it all up. Well, yeah. and then that you remember Irma Rios was like, yeah, I run the DNA section, and I know that there's a manual out here on how to work fire scenes, but I ain't really read it, though. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that she she's like... Oh, it's not funny. It's yeah, terrible. it's it's awful. Um, and then they set all the evidence outside, and it's gone. And it got That's lost. Right. Yeah, it got No, it got took. Yeah. I mean, the only piece that Somebody's they recovered like, was a, melt, a melted phone, and that was found at a, a, a Austin Fire Department testing site or whatever. But it was some melted phone that really had no evidentiary value. The That's actual like shelf where, shit. yeah, oh. right, that where the fire they believe the fire was started just vamoosed. No, nobody knows what happened to it. But they took pictures, Polaroids, Polaroid <clears throat> pictures. Yeah, on oh, my Beyonce and Lucy. You did the same thing last time. That's where you started. That's where I started. That's where you started. Dang. That's that's just that's the hook. So it'll come. I mean, I don't really want to get into it too much because it's really not relevant. But there is just this this there's this repeating issue in this case of the police. And I guess it's really it's true in all cases, especially higher profile ones. It's an interesting conundrum that that. This, this sort of interplay between law enforcement and the media, mm-hmm. right? Like the law, law enforcement wants to hold things back. They want to selectively, uh, you know, volunteer information for the sake of the investigation. But the media wants to gobble that up. Right. There's this one-upmanship. They want to make sure they get the scoop and all this. And so, mm-hmm. and then you've got to, re, you know, rely upon people in the know to keep their mouth shut. But there's leaks and, you know, anonymous sources and all this stuff. And and that plagued this case from the jump. Um, the Austin Police Department tried to come up with a list of 13 pieces of information that they were not going to divulge. Okay. Um, and almost immediately a whole host of those pieces of information <laughs> were say, divulged. When, okay. you, when you sit down and make a list of things that you aren't going to say... You've just compiled all the things you don't want to say into a handy into a, dandy list. You have for someone and to share. The other thing being that my understanding of this case is that it is the nature of an unsolved case. Right. You're about to list off 13 things we're not supposed to know, but I think we're going to know all 13 oh, of yeah. them, aren't we? I mean, <laughs> you know, but I guess revealing secrets it, it, later on, they're going to, they're going to collar some, some they're dudes try for this for and, they, okay. and there okay. are going to be trials and all okay. this is going to come out. But back then, right at, at the time of the crime, they're like, okay, now we're not going to talk about these things. Hmm. And then half hmm. of the time, it, the stuff getting leaked was from the official, uh, you know, press conferences that they would do. They'd try to, I don't know, I guess dance around it and they'd be like, damn it. <laughs> that was number seven. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, they just inadvertently be like, shit. Yeah, well, they know that one. We don't talk about Bruno. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and so, despite their best efforts and and failures to keep their mouth shut, um, as you might imagine, the street was just a buzz, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody... Everybody... Well, actually, as as I... You might recall from the last time, there were between... 
the fire department, the police department, EMS, all these folks, all these first responders who are out there on the scene, there were well in excess of 50 people responding to this fire. So Austin police department might've come up with like this little gag list. We're not going to talk about it, but the other agencies weren't necessarily beholden to it. And, you know, right. people, oh, I heard you went out to that call. What do you know? Well, I'm not Girl, supposed to let tell, me tell you this, you. but yeah. you know what I'm saying? And it just, it never worked. Yeah. Um, and like I said, the media did not help. This happened at, I mean, police were notified and responded 10 minutes to midnight on November 6th. Um, as I said, store closed at 11. So sometime in that hour is round about there is when this happened. And the next morning, the seventh, the newspaper in Austin, the Austin Statesman had published an article about what went down despite having no idea what no, they were talking no, about. Not based on facts. Yeah. Okay. They said, like, for example, just to, to show you uh, how erroneous it was, they said two white females, a white dude, and a fourth victim of unknown race and gender. Age spread between not 13 and 17, but 18 and 30. Those are wrong. And they're just more, and like, they just, it was every media outlet just, that just need, trying look, we to. We need to put something out, so uh -huh. we're going to. Ah, oh, that's frustrating. So we're going to make it up? That's Pre yeah. Pretty much. Or America. talk to some idiot who claims that he knows, oh, yeah. and, and we're just going to run. I was talking to Mike Jones. This, we was drinking at the bar. Yeah, this is pre-fact check. You yeah. know, this no, there was no fake news back then. Yeah. Um, And then on 12-8, the Apparently next- There was some fake news. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. right. <laughs> but that was- a People, whole lot people of weren't news. aware of aware it back of it, then. Yeah. It was like, oh, yeah, no, it's, <clears> it was in the paper. Um, But by the, on the 8th, they ran, the statesman ran a second article. Um, and this time, I guess I'd done a little bit more homework, actually understood slightly what they were talking about. Um, and they had the yearbook photos of uh, all four girls. victims, um, which I do believe are these right here, the, on the cover, oh, the cover, the cover of the book. Of the book. Um, and again, they... This time are quoting folks from the police department who are supposed to be keeping their mouth shut about possible motives and things of this nature. And without any real justification whatsoever, I don't know if it was supposed to be off the record and it wasn't. But my man Huck made some comment about oh, this had to have been crack cocaine. Oh, inspired. What? Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. They're naked, but it was because of crack cocaine. Yes. They're naked children. This is absolutely related to crack. Right. Or like, maybe cartels. I mean, we're in Texas. The border's right, there, right? right? Cartel. It's cartel. Yeah, cartels, crack. I mean, now granted, I guess in the late 80s, early 90s, crack was out whack. of control. It was but whack. it's still like no drug-related evidence whatsoever. And he was like, yeah, it's probably crack. What inspired this quadruple <laughs> homicide of innocent girls? Part um, of the war on drugs. That's right. And then also at this time, kind of setting the, the context for some of the angle or the avenues of the investigation. This is sort of amid the, the satanic panic. Yeah. Mm. Um, right in that wheelhouse and Texas ain't going to fall for cults. That. Well, they actually had a term for folks in what, what we would probably call goths. Yeah. They called them pibs. Pib it's people in black. If, if you wore <laughs> black clothes, had crazy hair, you were called a pib. all these pibs out here. And, uh, We'll, we'll get to this later, but so... Black is very slimming. Yeah, it is. It's, it's yeah. The, the most slimming color. Um, but... So, 
not only was CBS, I, CBS has the inside track with, with Austin PD and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but not only were they mic'd up with, with Mike Jones before he even responded, they got really kind of unparalleled in my opinion, treatment by the APD, like to the point that not only did they have unfettered access to the homicide unit, mm -hmm. they actually gave CBS slash 48 hours an office in the homicide unit to just post up and film shit what? and just be there, be present. Right? I would, I mean, what? I yeah. would never film think crews. that that's a good idea. No, 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 no. Of course not. Why? Oh, oh. Oh, <clears throat> did you break, oh. break your mic? No, we're good. Thank you. <clears throat> um, it was, was slouching there for a minute, but we got it. And so because this, there's this constant CBS 48 hours presence, camera crews, journalists and the like. That makes me uncomfortable. Right? I know, right? What, I can't even imagine. No. Like the, the. I'd be scared to do or say anything. Right. Yeah. The definition of an ongoing investigation. Like, oh, you want a camera crew? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Bet. Yeah. Like <laughs> And and so they're they're out here doing these search warrants and stuff, and mm. they got camera crews with them. While they, I got news for you: there's not a leak. Y'all let them in, right? Well, <laughs> that's, that's true. not a leak. That's not a leak. That's a valve that you turned open. That's, that's true. That's not a leak. And and so uh. as at least it relates to this uh, satanic panic thing, this is just kind of an aside, but I find this little this little gem in this case particularly special. Um, they apparently Mike Jones said they got somewhere in the neighborhood of 230 calls about this satanic stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I guess because it being kind of an alternative town and back when that was really that's true. Austin always been weird. Yeah. Right. Stay weird. And back then the, the satanic stuff, the goth stuff, whatever you want to call it was kind of afoot. And they got multiple tips about the possibility that there was this woman uh, by the name of Claire LeVay, who might have been involved. Uh, she supposedly called herself some high priestess of darkness or something oh. and had some following. And she actually was like a legit, you know, Satanist. Okay. Um, and I think like kind of the formal religious sense and had the icons and the, the weird stuff that most people are uncomfortable with. And I'm sure in Texas that wasn't, you know, accepted too kindly. How you spell that? LaVey? Yeah. Uh, L-A-V-A-Y-E. And they, uh, CBS was with them. They mm -hmm. kick the door in at her spot. She is in bed. She's naked and she's diddling herself. Oh. And didn't have a damn thing to do with it. <laughs> but that's all on film. <laughs> on film? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how, like, you know. Hours. Yeah, but they because they got the camera. Come yeah, in. We're yeah, going in. Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm close. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, for real. Um, okay. Okay. And so, it, and then. They ran the lead down, though. You got to give them that. Right, yeah. They're running it down. They just have a camera <laughs> crew with them. And that's the other thing. Like, you're going to make, you're going to make entry on a search warrant in a murder case. Like, and you've got, you got 48 hours true? rolling with you. Right. No. That's y'all Y'all go somewhere else. Right. Like You'll I'm, hear about this in some testimony, bro. Yeah. Some I'm body not, cam, I'm baby. not getting y'all shot. No. <laughs> Um, and so, like I said, this obviously we know this was at the ICBY. The ICBY was, or I guess the, the parent company was Bryce Foods. The CEO of Bryce Foods flew down from Dallas, uh, said that there was going to be a $25,000 reward for information that resulted in a conviction. Ultimately, that would that would grow to $100,000. Um, there were 
billboards that were, I forget how many it was initially. I think it was three or four around town um, that had basically this cover on it. Who killed these girls and the, um, the yearbook photos with the tip line number and the $25,000 reward. Later, it would get to 20 billboards around town, uh, $100,000 reward. It just kept going up. Not long after the killing, um, three of the girls would be buried like simultaneously in the same uh, cemetery there in Austin. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was Eliza Thomas's mom decided I want to, I don't know, put her in a family plot or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but the funeral procession, procession for the three girls was five miles long. I um, also thought it was interesting that APD posted up and, you know, from like covert locations surveilled with video, the, uh, funeral just to make sure, you know, if the dude showed up just to revel in his, uh, mm -hmm. deeds. see who was there. I mean, that's, then they had, they had a, you know, I guess undercover standing there at the great, at the, at the graveside. Um, didn't want to just plant a bug. No, I right. No, not plant a bug. We're going to stand no. there and hear, see what we hear. Um, oh, Texas I lied. Texas coming in your funeral. They're, they're going to be there. I lied to you. It was, it was not three or four. It was 12 billboards and then it went up to 20. Um, but yeah, the, so by February, this happened in, in December, by February there, the film crew from CBS was on, on scene mm -hmm. and episodes began to air as quickly as March. Wow. Of an ongoing. Yeah. And the first episode, like they weren't playing wow. around either. The first episode, the, the dude hitting you from the jump, uh, this, uh, this evening on 48 hours, whatever that was Dan Rather. Oh, coming in, coming in hot. Coming in hot. Jeez. Uh, oh, hey, speaking of coming in hot, your girl, your girl, Claire LeVay. Yeah. Um, works for the University of Texas at Austin now, according to her oh, LinkedIn. Well, okay. How about that? Went from Satan to... she teaching witchery? I, no. Witcheration? It's an odd description. She does web and social media tools, photography, Photoshop, image manipulation, okay. all these other things. And it, but... Uh, witchery works... is just a side hustle. Yeah. 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 That's what she do in her free time. Uh, continued active appointment with UT Austin in support of journals and editing. I don't know. Hook them. But yeah, so um, obviously national national attention through CBS, the, the Statesman, as I mentioned, but the Washington Post ran stories about this, the New York Times, like it got a lot of coverage quick. So these investigators are under a lot of pressure. Um, and they kind of begin, I guess, with, speaking with um any witnesses they can identify so they start to go back see who was in the store you know they got a tip line they're finding out who was actually there mm -hmm. um and one of the folks they speak to is a woman 51 year old lucella jones Ooh. she says i went in at about 8 15 8 30 i noticed eliza's vw and jennifer's s10 i went into the store and i only saw two customers two boys closely huddled at the table nearest the door. They were focused on a sack of some sort between them. She said it they of were, the hacky variety. Well, no, she said they were like, <laughs> like a, a bag of some sort, like in they, oh. that she heard things in it. Like maybe like they were crack. clanking around marbles or something. And then later, I think she testified in one of the trials that perhaps it could have been bullets. Um, <laughs> but, but the other two little girls weren't there yet. 
No, no she she did not indicate that I'm she saw the other two. I'm trying to remember from our last episode when they got picked up. They get picked from up. The they get picked up. Uh, I believe it was around around about nine o'clock. Okay, so, so it would have been after been this. Yeah. yeah. Um, she said she couldn't really articulate why, but they just bothered her. There's something mm. ominous about them, made her fearful. Um, one faced her, the other faced away toward the other male. She was able to describe the male she did see as probably between five four five seven between 14 and 17 had kind of a hippie look said the hair wasn't clean cut although not messy might be hispanic might also be white ah. said the one boy put his hand in a bag she heard yeah marbles coins keys something i don't know metallic jingle jangle. glassine yeah marbles and <clears throat> keys don't sound anything alike yeah she said she couldn't recall if they were eating or not. Um, she said she saw Eliza and Jennifer happily, you know, going about working their shift at the uh, at the at the shop, and she ultimately left. Um, she did buy a Sunday, and they found a check in the register. So I guess that was maybe one of the ways they identified her. But she really wasn't particularly helpful. Um, Jennifer did ultimately leave to go get her sister and Amy. Uh, she was required to do that night, and the younger two went down the shopping center there and got pizza. We know this because I guess it was about nine thirty. Um, Eliza's mom stopped in the so in the store, saw the girls, the younger girls eating the pizza, the older two working, nothing, nothing amiss. Um, and then between nine thirty and ten, a dude by the name of Daryl Croft rolls in. What up, D? He is a 52-year-old former uh, military police officer, current owner of a private security company. Um, he says he observed a fidgety young man in a green sort of uh, drab olive fatigue-like jacket, probably early to mid-20s, medium build, 155 to 170, 5'10 to 6 feet tall, white, said he was kind of alarmed because the dude seemed nervous and then he went around the counter to the back of the store after ordering a sprite at the icby and i guess the it was one of these where like you know there was no customer bathroom so he went around the counter to the back where the girls were you know <clears throat> later discovered um and i forget exactly how now but somehow this daryl croft dude knew i think it was eliza or one of them i forget he, he knew one of the girls mm -hmm. and was like What's that? What's up with him going around the back there? Like, what? That's weird, right? And she's like, "Oh, he asked. It's so it's cool, no problem." Um, and then I got to read my own handwriting here. Um, and then yeah, basically he left. She, he 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 was sort of taken aback, but I think he had you know ice cream in his hand, and I think maybe his wife was out in the car, and he was waiting for the dude to reappear, and stuff started to melt, and he was like, huh, well, she said it was fine, so I'm gonna leave. And, and then, how late was he up in there? He was there around 9, 30, 10 o'clock. Okay. And then he, um, you know, here's the reports of what went down, and he's like, oh, I gotta contact police to tell them what I know. Mm -hmm. He apparently ultimately would undergo hypnosis, and they were unable to get any additional information out of it. That shit seemed to be real popular <clears throat> there for a bit. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And they actually had him um, do a lineup later on and nothing. Hmm. Um, so basically 
officers are running down, you know, they're talking to everybody in the store who might know something and what they get is not a damn thing. They get that there might be two guys who might've been at the store at some point in time toward closing, maybe males, maybe white, maybe not probably mid twenties, maybe younger, maybe wearing hoodies. Cause somebody, I think the two boys were said, or the two maybe males sitting there with this satchel, um, were wearing hoodies maybe wearing some kind of fatigue dra- jacket, like really just nothing. All over the place. Nothing. Yeah. Um, so we got the bodies. We're going to do an autopsy. Let's see if that leads us anywhere. Yeah. Um, and if, as you'll recall, the chief medical examiner was out of town on leave or something. So mm-hmm. the deputy uh, chief was there and he was an asshole. Mm-hmm. How do you and remember that? Finally, at about seven. Body snatchers. Of course yes, the body remember. snatchers. At about seven o'clock in the morning on the seventh, um, Jones is satisfied that they've, you know, I guess worked seen as much as they practically can at that point, And he's going to finally relent and say, okay, Emmys, y'all can have this body. And the all four autopsies occur on the seventh of uh, December. Jones and I think Huck also was there. Um, I don't know, definitely Jones, but maybe Huck too. Um, and this dick bag, Les Carpenter, the deputy chief, was also there. And as you can imagine, after having to sit there in the parking lot all night and being told, you know, I can't have what I believe I should have, mm-hmm. he is salty. And he, uh, Jones and, and Huckabee would later go on to say that they thought that Carpenter's demeanor basically bled his hostility bled into the performance of the autopsy like the, the guy who was doing it um was was influenced adversely he was i guess pressured thought he needed to get it done quicker or whatever and he was actually a part-timer contracted to do the occasional weekend autopsy he wasn't a permanent guy either so you know why bring we're gonna in the, bring what? in the b shift to right. do uh freaking yeah. Autopsies of four kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so yeah, they think they felt that, that this Les Carpenter dude being the way he was negatively influenced the performance of the autopsy by this Dr. Tommy Brown. And, uh, like to the point that despite it being standard operating procedure for arsons to swab the body for possible accelerants mm-hmm. didn't happen. So they, they didn't, look for any evidence of accelerants on the scene and they also did not swab the bodies for accelerant that is correct mm-hmm. um now i mean they everybody it seems was in agreement now i still think this is stupid that you should you should swab for it in my opinion regardless but i guess part of the reason maybe that they didn't was um there was a consensus among all persons there fire department everybody that generally if an accelerant is used you're going to smell it and there was not any odor in this case right and we talked about that and we also talked about how hot this fire was burning Mm -hmm. yeah i think it was north of 1200 degrees or something Mm -hmm. um so yeah they just did not swab the body for accelerants i don't know whether that would have really been a major break or not but they didn't and it just kind of you know bespeaks the nature of the investigation and, and, and critical stages especially at the outset yeah um which is pretty important the outset yeah you would think right that's like that's when it really freshest, matters right before most freshest most freshest most before, freshest before all the evidence had been taken out of the alley most freshest to deficit <laughs> um 
so interestingly, uh, I did not delve into this issue because that's just a level of nerddom I was not interested in entertaining. But back in 1991, as a matter of law in Texas, autopsies were public record. Hmm. Um, and without any explanation, anything that I could find there was, and I, I like, I really don't understand how this happened. Like how this judge had jurisdiction was even aware that an autopsy had occurred. Like, I don't understand that, but on December 9th, two days after the cut, a Travis County district court judge by the name of Wisser ordered that they be sealed. Um, and at the district court in Texas, I didn't know how their court structure worked. Yeah. It is apparently their court of original jurisdiction in felony cases. So is there, is there their primary trial court? Their circuit court for yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Also, Man, could you, I could see that though. I could see you're in that jurisdiction. You're a, a effectively like for here, a circuit judge, like you're, you're the court of general jurisdiction and you hear that, that happens. I don't know. I could see them uh, being like, seal that. No, you got to have a motion from somebody. You do, but that doesn't mean I can't see somebody doing it. Yeah. I I, I don't know. In uh, There was never any indication in, in the book or anywhere else I could find that, you know, who had moved. It actually said, um, like, I, I don't know. I don't know if someone suggested it. Um, you can't enter an order on a suggestion. If you don't have a case in front of you. Right. Sua sponte, administrative order. There right. it is, baby. Get it did. Seal like, them records. Like there's actually the only the only uh, mention of of sort of the precedent for this yeah. was from the chief medical examiner upon his return. And he was like, I've been doing this for 14 years and I've never seen nothing like it. Mm hmm. Because there was no authority for it, I don't think. He's just <laughs> like, yeah, bet. That's what's happening. It's so and Texas. Um, to the point that Ooh. I don't really understand what that meant. I guess maybe, maybe it was a, like a redacted version as far as like identifying information and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I guess so as not to be totally contemptuous of, of the order, the Travis County DA's office released a sanitized version because they were like, yeah, we can't seal this. I know that judge told us we got to keep it under wraps, but we're not going to. Mm hmm because that's not the law. Um, interestingly, that dude, that Wisser has been on the on the bench in some capacity or another, and this might have been part of it too, uh, in some capacity or another since 1977, and apparently is still on the bench today. Yeah, he is. Dude has been on the bench for like 50 years. Getting after it. Yeah. Um, but so, as you can imagine, with all of that focus and attention... Um, and it being where it was that the floodgates of, of calls and tips and leads and everything just burst wide open. Yeah. Um, everybody knew somebody who had come home and been out of breath or was yeah. acting weird and evasive. Smelling smoky. Right. Had some, had some blood on their shirt, you know, yeah. like, um, yeah. came home when they weren't supposed to like mm -hmm. what, just whatever. Um, being too interested in the case or yeah. being like, yo, if, if, but if I had did it, you know what I'm saying? Uncle like Pete likes yogurt way too much. Yeah. Right. I'm going to call about it. And, uh, apparently they were getting somewhere in the neighborhood of 70, 50 to 75 tips a day at the outset, um, that, you know, they were trying to catalog and actually take seriously and run down. And <clears throat> there was an aside that I guess in, in the book that I saw that the, investigators concluded that it would take if they got a 
suspect that had any viability to him at all mm -hmm. that, and I guess really they were taking everybody seriously because until you clear them, you don't know. Right. Um, you don't know what tip is going to be the tip. Right. So just they, a tip. that's right. They concluded that every tip, no, no matter how uh, deep it was, would take eight hours to clear at least maybe, per, per maybe tip. more okay. per tip. And they're getting 75 a day. Yeah. And I think okay, the, what, what do the kids say? Sheesh. Is that what the kids say nowadays? I have no idea. Okay. What is sorry. that from? I don't know. Oh, okay. I, I thought that's what the, what is after the Gen Zers? Sheesh. No. Okay. All right. I sorry. Go I ahead. I don't know. Go ahead. I have no idea what you're talking <laughs> about. I'm going to Google this. So keep going. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think, you know, despite it taking a full business day per suspect and they're getting 75 a day, I think at the outset there were three of them. It was Huck, Jones, mm -hmm. and some other guy, mm -hmm. I think. Three amigos. Um, so, you know, manpower was an issue. And so these guys are running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And uh, to the police department's credit, I guess, they finally relented and allowed Jones to enlist the, the assistance of the feds. And so a formal task force was created that had representation from the police department, fire department, ATF, FBI, the Intel folks with the department of public service, the Travis County Sheriff's office and the Travis County DA's office, but not for two months. So, you know, first 48, mm -hmm. they got the first 60 days. Of just good luck to you, bud. Jeez. Um, and by that time, they'd lost everything. Right. Um, and, you know, just there was there was a thing about perspective. It said that uh, eight weeks into the investigation, they'd compiled a 600-person database with information and tips. And they were still eight weeks later interviewing folks who might have been in or worked at or whatever that store on that day, on the 6th. Uh, and they still had 50 more people they wanted to talk to. And it would later grow to 485 tips, 800 suspects, and it just, it snowballed out of control. And they, yeah, they did get more people, but it was two months later. Right. Um, on the 9th, two days after the, the crime, or I'm sorry, well, two-ish, we'll call it. Um, the APD sent a nationwide bulletin, I guess, to, I don't know if they did it through NCIC. I don't know exactly how they did it, but they sent some kind of nationwide bulletin to all law enforcement agencies asking if they had encountered similar crimes to help them develop, like, you know, a profile, how to actually actively, effectively investigate this thing. Sure. Makes sense. Um, <clears throat> I guess the description they provided was a small caliber gun, fire, victim's clothing used to bind them, no forced entry. They got nada in response. Um, the violent criminal apprehension program with the FBI told Jones's boy with the ATF, Chuck Myers, that the database had nothing for that. So I guess, you know, state and locals, no response, right? Feds. They, they go to the feds, they go, we got nothing. Apparently there was a, there was a little anecdote in there where Jones had some kind of conversation with an FBI agent who said, quote, it's all yours. <laughs> like we don't got shit for you homie it's all yours Damn. and he said you know just kind of spit or, you know whatever just shooting the shit he was like y'all got about two three weeks or it ain't happening and proved probably to be right um but nevertheless in january of 1992 
Quantico, the FBI, they send the uh, behavioral science unit mm-hmm. and they go out there to help try to generate a profile and, and give this thing some, some meaningful direction. And this essentially is the profile that they come up with for their prospective killer. They say more than one, one of them was dominant, um, probably white, late teens to mid twenties. The dominant one was likely a dropout with poor grades who resents discipline, has an explosive personality, especially when high or drunk. Crack. Um, crack. Enter crack. Is impulsive, will fight, but only with some kind of advantage. Um, probably unemployed or has some kind of menial job. Is a, if he is employed, has a poor employment uh, performance, lots of absenteeism. Mm hmm. History of changing jobs, probably lives off of or, you know, with an older person, such as a parent, grandparent, whatever, probably violent toward women generally and has a record, doesn't feel any remorse, probably seeks out younger women. Um, But the BSU acknowledged that because of the lack of precedent for this, they were just making the shit up. (laughs) Here's our profile, but in candor. It's bullshit. We really but don't know. <laughs> here's our humble opinion. Here's our humble best guess. Yeah. Because we don't have any, you know, uh, uh, any any real examples to follow. To much to... better than that group of people who uh, gave that opinion in the oh in the co-ed WVU. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Whoever wrote those letters absolutely did it. And so, also. Um, on so and 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 these were some of the more noteworthy leads that came in that were run down that just never really went anywhere look at all that highlighting did you buy that book or is that the library's property bro oh no i bought this homie. okay all right um on so on december well we'll just call it late december mm-hmm. jones is now he, he's exclusively dedicated to yogurt shop i guess he got taken out of the homicide rotation you're this is you mm-hmm. um lucky him right and he gets a tip. They get a tip about a black guy named Cornelius who friends say had been bragging about killing white girls. Okay. And he apparently was a reputed drug dealer and former member of the Crips in LA. Okay. Um, Jones brought him in. Dude had an alibi. Remember when you got drunk and had that great spiel about Yukon Cornelius? Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, It was true though. Everything he said about him. Everything he said. Okay. OG pimp. Indeed. Um, and so then right about that same time, you know, they get, they get Cornelius and whatever, and they, they clear him, but then they get a, a case that is really quite interesting. It's, um, nine 15, a woman by the name, a 28 year old woman by the name, 28 year old woman by the name of Colleen Reed. She's an accountant and she pulls into a popular 24 hour, self-service car wash mm-hmm. on fifth street in Austin. And she, uh, parks in the third bay, steps out, goes about, you know, starting the, uh, the car wash. I think it's one of these, you know, back then coin operated. Mm-hmm. She leaves her purse and her groceries on the front seat. Nobody else is there. And apparently this is a very well lit area. This is, um, I never really, this book shed some light on something, 
something for me. I know you've been to Austin, so you maybe can relate, but yeah. Do you remember in uh, Days and Confused? Yes. Let's go meet out at the moon tower. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what the hell is a moon tower? Well, it goes on quite a bit in here to explain what moon towers are, but apparently they're large towers that were erected back in the day in Austin to just light areas. They were like really big ass street lamps. Hmm. Um, and this uh, area had uh, happened to be illuminated by one of these moon towers. So it was generally considered to be a pretty safe spot. Sure, you can see well. Um, yeah, like it says, it was 165 feet above it, casting a silvery white light over a radius of about seven blocks. That's a big That's ass a big street line. lamp. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> and so they witnesses were on a front porch nearby and they see a Thunderbird driving the wrong way on a one-way street on, well, I guess fifth at that, at that portion of fifth is a one-way and the car's going the wrong way. And they yell out one way. The mm -hmm. car keeps going. The next thing they hear is a scream and a car door slams shut. Then the Thunderbird reappears, continuing to go the wrong way, but now on 6th Street. Um, and <clears throat> when police arrive, they find her car sitting there at the third bay, driver's door is open, purse, groceries, ATM receipt, all still there. Mm -hmm. This ain't a robbery. Right. Kind of like the yoga shop, the cash register was empty, but, mm -hmm. but that why if your goal for. is to, to rob them, you gonna do that to all them girls. No. Right. And Interesting. then, so they keep working it and they put together information that a convicted but paroled serial killer from yep. texas by the name of kenneth mcduff ain't texas was, supposed to kill people uh, right Cer why are they gonna parole a serial, serial killer more than one you yeah. have killed more than one yes and you are still alive in the state of texas <laughs> and not behind bars and not Scott even behind bars by the name of kenneth, Mc kenneth mcduff the investigators learn was in austin around about the time that colleen reed got abducted and as I said, this was in, I think, December of 91. Okay. And um, basically, they learn that McDuff had a homie by the name of Alva Worley. And they go and they speak with old Alva. And homeboy says, yup, I did the driving that night. Uh, I drove from Waco to Austin with McDuff. We were going to go to either get meth or cocaine, probably crack. crack. Um, but before we knew it, before I knew it, McDuff hopped out the car, snatched his girl, grabbed her by the throat. She's screaming, no, not me, not me. And he yanks her in the car and we drive off. And he confesses, Worley does, to forcing oral sex on Colleen Reed, raping her while McDuff drove, I guess, out of Austin. They go back to Waco. McDuff burned her with cigarettes, raped her repeatedly um, until at one point she actually laid her head on Worley's shoulder and begged him to please not let McDuff hurt her anymore. I guess, you know, please put me out of my misery. Mm -hmm. um, then they drive to an open field. Yeah. McDuff and uh, McDuff told Worley he was going to use her up, which was something he would say before he'd kill a woman. Um and then he said, initially he said, well, I don't know how he killed her. Uh, well, okay. They also, they called McDuff the the broomstick killer. 
because apparently his method was to take a broom and like put it over the uh you know the esophagus and just and just strangle you to death like that sounds terrible yeah uh, texas done fucked up with this one what right. um he should be real dead or behind bars or whatever your sense of justice is <laughs> right so initially he said i don't know how he killed her but he buried her in a field somewhere up there near waco i'm not exactly sure where um but i and and i don't know where mcduff is either but i don't think he's still in waco um and then Worley, obviously based on his admissions to raping and you know <laughs> abducting and all these other things this woman um now he's incarcerated and he goes okay i actually watched mcduff break her neck with his hands um he didn't have a broomstick handy well um, resourceful some bitch but based off that they ultimately i forget where they apprehend him but they do find mcduff and they question him about the yogurt shop and dude had did alibis you do, did you do that yogurt shop he had a, alibis be a lot cooler if you did and he he said uh i'll be honest with y'all not only do i have alibis if i murk those four girls in, in this this case of national acclaim i'd be proud of it i'd be telling y'all right now that i did it um sounds like a swell fella right i i did not do it someone worthy of parole right yeah. oh yeah for that, sure no no doubt about that texas did not make a mistake how many on that people one. did he kill well that he got parole for what his name is mcnutty mcduff mcduff McDuff. mcduff like the crime dog no that's mcgruff <laughs> oh i'm sorry here it is he was he was arrested in kansas city he was working as a city garbage collector under the name under a name he had stolen from a social security card uh, Worley was convicted and given a life sentence for the rape charge, but he didn't confess to the murder. McDuff didn't either. Um, but in 1993, he would be sentenced to death for the 1992 murder of a 22 pregnant. Uh, I'm sorry, of a pregnant 22 year old store clerk in Waco. And his basically his he rash, looks like such a punk. How many people did he kill? He, yeah. he, the estimates are... Oh, you got, a, you got an estimate there? The estimates Joe's are... Joe's got his wiki pulled up. Low estimates are 14. Jay, many Christmas. Yes. Here's my thing. He was given three death sentences early on for his broomstick nonsense. Killed a 16-year-old <clears throat> girl, her boyfriend, 17, a 15-year-old dude named Mark. Uh, killed them all. He was given three death sentences that were reduced uh, to life imprisonment due to uh, Furman v. Georgia case when they did away with the death penalty there for a hot minute in the 70s. And then Texas was like, eh, parole sounds fresh in right. 1989. Oh. But he ended up, they put him down in 98. They got it right second time. Yeah. Texas. Yeah, he, um, so in 98... Not long before he was about to get did in, um, he basically said, all right. So they never found Colleen, Colleen Reed's body because oh. like uh, Worley said, he was like, I don't know where he buried it. But then right not long before he gets executed, ex executed, executed. <laughs> he says, look, I'm going to tell you all where the body is. Mm -hmm. If you will reduce a sentence for my nephew who's in federal prison on a dope beef and um sure enough he says he, he leads them right to her body and he also led them to the burial sites of two other women he'd raped and murdered and like i said i don't know if he ever actually admitted to how many but the estimates are 
14 plus. Yeah, um, it looks like these confirmed ones. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's at least nine confirmed. Right. So, like, could you imagine as investigators work in this case, you learned that a dude who was a serial killer, convicted serial killer, was on out on parole in Austin at the time yeah. these girls got did in. And it's like, but it wasn't him, though. Bro, hold up, hold up. Well, I mean, these girls weren't strangled. Well, check it. October 10th, 91. Do you have a burn anybody? He killed a girl, tied up, raped, tortured her to death. That's October 10th, 91. October 15th, 91. Tied up a girl with stockings, raped, and murdered her. December 29th, 91 is your girl, the car wash girl, abducted her. Uh, another, these are more strength, strangulations. Nothing about a gun, I guess. Right, that's what I mean. He'd been strangling everybody. <sighs> he ain't shooting nobody. He ain't setting nobody on fire either. He'd be burying people. <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah, so it was um, not Mr. McDuff. No, reckon not. But yeah, to find that out, I'm sure that would have been alarming. Yeah. Um, he is buried at the Captain Joe Bird Cemetery, commonly referred to as Peckerwood Hill. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In Huntsville, Texas. Oh. Oh, well, that's where they buried the prison. That's what I say. That's where they, that's the, isn't that what they call it? The Huntsville unit or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Um, his headstone contains only his date of execution and an X, meaning he was executed by the state of Texas. <laughs> Damn, that's cold. I like it. It's frosty. Um, but yeah, so also another lead that is sort of uh, cultivated is I don't entirely understand how, but there were a number of folk, number of folks came forward and said that they saw a Latino dude sitting in a vehicle in the yogurt shop parking lot roundabout closing time. Mm-hmm. And based off of these folks who said this, a composite was generated and the statesman ran it and it came, it went on local TV, you know, have you seen this person mm-hmm. sort of thing. And, um, a guy, they, they start to get information that a guy by the name of Armando Razo fits, uh, not only, I guess, looked kind of maybe like the, the composite, but also fit the FBI profile pretty well. Um, said he was known for physical violence, carried a pistol under the front seat of his vehicle and bragged apparently about a drive-by he'd gotten away with in San Antonio. After the sketch was publicized, he, 19 years old, Mm -hmm. quit his job at the Sonic and told his friends he was going into hiding. So Jones is real interested in this guy. Yeah. No doubt. That sounded Um, good. They then locate him not too long thereafter uh, he provides he provides three alibi witnesses. Ain't the guy. Like real alibi witnesses or like his mama? Uh, apparently, there were three alibi witnesses that Jones was like, these check out it. It's not our man. Um. Then also, the next... He must have also thought that sketch looked just like him, though. Right. Seriously. Like for him yeah. to quit it to Sonic. He acknowledges. Yeah, right. Sonic. He must have looked close. Um. And then there was another big lead that came out relating to this this sketch of this Latino guy in the car. Um, basically, it said that, well, okay, so calls start to come in and they say that the dude in the picture 
appears to be a guy by the name of Alberto Cortez. And they, everybody says, everybody who says that this looks like, like Cortez says, if Cortez was in the mix, his boys, uh, Ricardo Hernandez and Porfirio Saavedra were also there. They roll, they roll as a crew. Yes. They were actually members of a, um, hold on, where my, where my notes is here. They were, they were members of a motorcycle gang, 60 member motorcycle gang in Northern Mexico, Texas area. Mm -hmm. Um, known as the Mierdas Punks, and they were their primary um, criminal, criminal rackets were trafficking drugs Yar. and stealing cars. Oh, um, and so interestingly, who's like, going to ride your bike back when you steal the car with your motorcycle gang? That is a good point. I don't know. Maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know. They're going to have to have two dudes riding on a motorcycle together. That's true. One's going to have to get off to steal the car. Dick to ass. Right. The whole way. Nuts Nuts to bus. bus. Uh Uh-huh. But more than just, okay, these guys, or the one guy looks like this dude in this picture and he rolls with homies. Mm -hmm. Um, There were, on November 17th, 1991, Two and a half weeks or so before yogurt shop on um what is it yeah sixth street the the music scene mm-hmm. there was a um heavy metal bar by the name of the cavity club it's a and, cool bar name and a woman got abducted hmm. out of uh, out well in the parking lot from the the bar or whatever but she got abducted at gunpoint raped in her in a car in the parking lot and then driven to San Antonio and just I guess tossed out of the car. Not murked. Just, just literally dropped dumped out of the car. Antonio. Yeah. Okay. Um, for a town that didn't have much crime, it sounds like an awful lot of people getting raped. Yeah, oh, there were very around this time. Very, there's very there's more in this book. There was a dude, it was like a dude and his son got stabbed to death. And it was apparently some like retired chemist who also lived in the house who just was off his rocker for a second. And there, there's all kinds of murders for such a safe town. I agree. Um, and a lot of them really kind of, you know, horrific. I mean, I guess all murder is, but, you know, just particularly egregious. Mm-hmm. Um, so the suspects in the Cavity Club rape were Cortez, Hernandez and Saavedra. Mm-hmm. And it was believed that Cortez had fled to Mexico. Hernandez was missing, but thought maybe to be in California and Saavedra might, it was believed maybe was still in Austin. Um, And so basically this, it, it gets a little complicated and I really don't understand what happened. Something to do with the DA's office in Travis County in consultation with the Mexican consulate and the whole law enforcement, federal uh, law enforcement apparatus in, in Mexico. Los Federales. Yes. Did this like joint operation where there was going to be like extradition slash maybe kind of like, you know, CIA rendition sort Mm -hmm. of stuff. Like just (laughs) craziness. Um, But what ultimately happened was, Saavedra and Cortez were apprehended and I don't I'm not sure if they were apprehended in Mexico or the United States but regardless they were flown to Mexico City 
and um, they were questioned there um, in relation to a host of offenses to include drug trafficking, the Cavity Club case, um, and APD goes down and says, well, let's holler at him about yoga shop. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, Saavedra confessed. Ceviche says he did it. Ceviche says I did it. And he he's brought... Uh, I can't with you. He says I done did it. He's brought before reporters, uh, you know, kind of... Perp but this walk. is in Mexico. I mean, are they beating him when he says this? Well... They got the jumper cables on his gonads? What are we... So he's he's perp walked. They do a press conference and he goes, I killed the girls. Apparently reporters said, why'd you do it? He shook his head and then was just, you know, escorted away. Um, nothing to see here. And then APD sends down a few people. I guess the higher ups decided it wouldn't be a good look to send Huckabee and Jones. Um, maybe it'd lend too much credence to this potential lead or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um so they send Huck, and you know, because they got CBS right up in their, in their kitchen. You you got to make uh, decisions based upon how it looks. Yeah, well, true. Um, so they send Huck, and I believe it was two Spanish-speaking um, members of the force, mm -hmm. and they go down and they talk to Saavedra, and from the jump they're like, "This dude doesn't know shit." Mm -hmm. um, they were like, "Did you? Did you?" kill him and he was like well yeah i killed him at an ice cream shop but then he didn't know how many were killed he mm. said he said was it i think i killed three um <laughs> with a question mark i think i killed three <clears throat> and he he said that you know basically he had um mutilated the girls he, he cut their breasts off their arms their vaginas tied them up with rope done a lot of Terrible things to the bodies that didn't, didn't happen. happen. Still a better confession than in the WBU coed. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Eugene Klaus. And then, yeah, the the one Spanish-speaking officer who went down, a Detective Hector Revales? It's not Revales. Uh, maybe okay. it is Revales. I don't know. But he said that, quote, these persons were not responsible for the murders. And then, <clears throat> shocker, within three days, at this point in the recording, Cheryl received uh, a very important phone call from a law enforcement officer. Justice never, never sleeps. So we had to take a breather, but we're back. Right. Meow. Engage. Okay. So within three days of his confession, Saavedra recounted, he repeatedly stated, I didn't do this. And he and Cortez they were they were interviewed separately. They would both claim to have been tortured during the flight to Mexico City with plastic bags pulled over their heads. They claimed that there were threats to attack their family members, uh, specifically to violate their wives, daughters, and sisters. This is too easy. I um, was on that shit. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Um, Ricardo Hernandez, the other part of that sort of equation, was mm -hmm. never apprehended. Hmm. So they never, they never spoke to old boy. He's swimming with the fishes. And at least at the time, that was really, those were some of the best leads they had. And as you can see, they those all- Those are trash. They all dried up. Yeah. Um, and the case just kind of started to languish. And by May 
of 93. So about, you know, 18 months or so into the investigation, mm-hmm. um, a senior sergeant by the name of Ron Smith said that the yogurt shop task force is no more. Okay. Like we're, we're done. We can't put resources into this anymore. We're not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, and he says, Ooh. Jones, you can stay on the case. This can stay your baby, but you're working eight to four Monday through Friday. No OT task force is over. Mm-hmm. That is what it is. Um, and so then basically for about six months or so, um, yogurt shop was John Jones. He was it. Huck wasn't there anymore. Nobody it was no. him. Um, and basically he would eventually, he, he basically, his, his life fell apart. His, his marriage fell apart. His, his career was slipping. Um, he was, is he still, he's not doing other cases. I think he's still dedicated to yoga shop eight to four Monday through Friday. And he would drive you insane. Well, he had a doctor take a look at him mm-hmm. and. Apparently, he was exhibiting 90% of the symptomology of PTSD. Mm-hmm. And um, he requested and received a one-month leave of absence, which he, I guess, just, I don't know, being stir-crazy or too um, dedicated to the case or whatever, couldn't... Couldn't, couldn't do. Uh, couldn't couldn't do. keep yeah, him he had, to, he had to, He got too restless, had to go back on the job. He couldn't, yeah. he couldn't deal with that. Like Johnny up in here on his vacation days. <sighs> right. Okay. And so... Um, on by May sixth of, I guess now we're into ninety three. Mm-hmm. Um, Jones gets a phone call and is told, "You're off the case. We're we're going to replace you. There's you and a guy from the APD uh, child abuse unit mm-hmm. are going to trade places." And so he's like, "I'm going from homicide to child, child abuse." abuse? Um, why not just put him back in the homicide rotation? Give old boy a break. You you stuck him with this loser of a case. (laughs) Right. And so, Uh. I mean, like I said, uh, before we started to record this, I said, this was going to be a very unsatisfying episode and Mm -hmm. installment. And I guess it really is, but that's kind of, that is the end of the John Jones era of of the the case. And then everything was trash, but it doesn't really seem to be too much his fault. No, I mean, he probably was responsible for some lapses and sure. everybody makes mistakes. oversights or whatever, you know, but still, yeah, I think he really was in a lot of respects, the glue that kept it together to the extent it was kept together. And then it stalled out and they were like, bro, you're, you're done. Um, and so with how long did the camera crew hang on in the office? That I don't know. They didn't say when they actually got the boot, but they were they they had enough. They were there Little long enough know. to do three episodes of Forty Eight Hours on this case. So they had to have been there for a while. Um, I saw evidence that would suggest that maybe there's a new season of Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. Yes, and um, I wonder if this has ever been on Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know. I'm going to find out before our next installment, bruh. But yeah, so that ends the Mike Jones, John Jones era Mm -hmm. of the case. And from there, I I will say that sort of the next big break in the case is 
the identification of suspects who are ultimately prosecuted and are the subject of the remainder of the case kind okay. of to the to, to present to like present okay the, all of the legal sort of machinations that happen post arrest that that's what comes next it, interrogations prosecutions all of it so, so we had you, we had a walkthrough on night one now we've got swinging throwing punches underwater for mike jones and now he's out and our next installment is going to be getting to the to the moving part of this yeah i mean i can't i don't know if it's technically correct but i it, in my sort of opinion on the case the way i understand things it seems like we've reached the point where officially speaking the case has gone cold okay and then some years are going to elapse and then we're going to get us a break. And actually one of the individuals of interest moving forward, uh, West Virginia ties. Yeah. Really? Okay. Look at him hmm. getting it all juicy right at right. the end here. And I was just about to ask him before he said years, I was like, can you tell us how long it takes for this to occur? Yeah, but years, huh? Years. Years. Years more of it being, you know, uh, more folks come in and they keep working it and they look at things and then they realize, oh, wait a second, maybe we overlooked this particular lead. And mm. there's going to be debate about Jones going, no, we investigated that and thought it was without merit. But then there's this fixation on this particular lead and it it just it goes from there. OK. Mm. OK. Oh, love a good cold case. Wow. Well, Ray, I, I mean, you were right. That was interesting, but albeit disappointing. Right. Uh, it's a, it, an interesting bridge, I guess. But yeah. We're yeah, we didn't, we didn't we're get there today, but we're, we're getting there. The train has, I think, we've left, we, we set the backstory and now we're yeah. leaving the station. Well, okay. Stuff's going to get rolling now. Well, and I appreciate the uh, thoroughness of your uh, investigation and presentation. Thanks, buddy. It's, uh, it's good stuff. And I'm sure the people love it. Um, It's no secret we've been. We've been busy doing stuff that ain't this. Yeah, right. So it's, uh, I very much enjoy being back. I feel like we're saying that at every episode now. Man, it's good to be back. <laughs> right. And then yeah. it'll be another month until we can get back Thanks again. It's terrible. But it's been busy at the Justice Factory. You know, that's, that's what we signed up for, I, I mm -hmm. reckon. So um, very enjoyable. I look forward to the next installment. I don't know about you, Cheryl. Oh, of course I uh, do. Uh, yeah, you, you know do. I love it when Ray tells a story. <laughs> he tells a good story. So... All right. Well, uh, we got we got the Instagrams. Don't forget, we got the uh, email. If you have any suggestions, Cheryl's working on an email suggestion for us right now, doing a case. Um, appreciate the feedbacks that you get there, and uh, hope you all are, are are being good out there. And until next time, y'all stay out of trouble. I remember that shit in The Wire where they somehow wind up in West Virginia on accident. Like, they're oh, too yeah, young yeah, but... and they're just like, where the fuck? Like, we're on another planet. And then Ernie, oh, all rap! <laughs> <laughs>